And welcome to an, a special edition of the Romantic About Baseball podcast. Uh, I am your host, Adam McKinnon, and joining me today is uh, Mr. Dan Clemens. Uh, Dan is, as of uh, this particular moment, and Dan, step in and correct me here, the uh, oldest active professional baseball player in America. Is that correct? That's actually correct. Yeah, I never thought I'd be saying that, but yeah, it's true. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, officially welcome. And uh, so I just kind of wanted to, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to, you know, touch base with you is I just think your story is really interesting. And I wanted to kind of maybe you know, get your thoughts. So you first of all, get the story and then also talk about a couple of things. Um, you've written some books on coaching and, uh, you know, youth, uh, talent, you know, youth development more or less in baseball and how that translates outside of the, of the bleachers and the diamonds, so to speak. So, um, uh, first off, tell me who is Dan Clemens? Well, uh, I'm 51 years old as of now. I've uh, been playing baseball since I was about five years old. Uh, live uh, just south of Denver, Colorado, and uh, have a wife, two kids, and uh, just, boy, I love the game of baseball. And uh, been been playing it ever since I was five years old. Um, got to play quite a bit, uh, you know, as a, as a youth into high school, and then had an injury that uh, to my shoulder that ended the pitching career uh, in college and took many years off. It was tough to be around the game, um, having having been injured and not, not being able to compete. Right. Um, and then I got back into it as, as, a, as an adult uh, in, my, in my 30s, and I've been playing adult baseball ever since. And um, I guess I would say in, when I'm not playing baseball, uh, I'm a communications consultant, so I do a lot of uh, workplace communication, uh, helping leaders and teams and organizations uh, communicate more effectively together. Okay. So well, let me, let me uh, back up just for a second. Like what were your first memories? You know, everybody has that sort of baseball Genesis moment. Like what, you know, the, the, the first memory, what was your first, you know, baseball memory? Yeah, believe it or not, it was actually of not getting to play. Uh, I had a couple of friends that were about six months older than I were. I, I was at the time. And, they signed up for the for the summer rec league uh, baseball when when they were five and I was only four and so they got to go off and play and I didn't and I remember being just so heartbroken and not understanding <laughs> well they get to play and how come I don't and uh, so I you know played on my own I played wiffle ball with my with my to, dad to a four year old this is like devastating. Oh yeah, yeah. Because uh, my <laughs> friends were all getting to play, and you know, we talk, they would talk about it, and then I wasn't getting to do it. So, um, I guess that that fueled a desire to to get to play at their level, to you know, to get better, to improve. And uh, not that I really thought about it in those terms, probably at that age. But um, right. I remember saying, I want to be able to compete against those guys. And did you always want to be a pitcher? Was it something where, you know, what, what was your, what did you gravitate towards as you came up through, you know? No, I didn't. I, I actually, uh, I pitched a little bit um, when I was, oh, probably 10, 11, 12. And then uh, as I started to get into high school, I, I really enjoyed playing first base and I really enjoyed hitting. I was a uh, Kansas City Royals fan and that was oh, kind of in okay. the, or, or uh, Late 
70s, early 80s, and a huge George Brett fan, and so I modeled my swing after him, and I thought, you know, that's that's what I want to do. I just want to So you started as George Brett, and then you ended up like Brett Saberhagen. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's right, yeah. Um, and kind of a funny story how I got into pitching um, when I was a sophomore uh, playing on a JV team. Um the the game was on a Saturday and the guy that was supposed to pitch uh, was late because he was taking the SAT exam oh. and apparently it ran late and they said well we need somebody to fill in and pitch and I said well yeah heck I'll, I'll do it well I, I ended up taking a shutout into like the fifth or sixth inning and I remember when the guy showed up I said well, okay well it's your turn and the coach said hey uh-uh. no you're, <laughs> you're doing really well let's just keep doing what we're doing here right. and so at that point i kind of thought okay well yeah maybe i'll maybe i'll try pitching uh, again there you go now i gotta ask did you did you finish the perfect game uh i don't think it was perfect i think i had a shutout or or something like that or i don't know maybe they had scored on me <laughs> but it was it was a lot better than i had expected and i think a lot better than the coaches had expected so that's great uh they I think they were more excited about it than I was at the time. And once the game was over, it kind of sunk in that, oh, okay, yeah, maybe, yeah, I, I was successful and uh, maybe I ought to give this a try. You're, you're in the Dairy Queen parking lot and then it dawns on you like, oh, wait a second. Right. <laughs> this might right. have worked. Um, so, so you were a pitcher and, you know, you took that in and you, through high school and then, um, for lack of a better analogy, the wheels came off. And can you tell me about tell me about the injuries that that really derailed this this process? And 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 um, to contextualize it, how far into the like were were scouts were you on were scouts radars? Like what were you thinking? Like what? Because I know you were all American, I think, right? Uh, I was I was all state all state. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah, I was all state in Colorado as a junior, and then again as a senior. And I had. Uh, there were pro scouts that were kind of sniffing around. Um, I was, I think at that age, really more of kind of a, of a project. Uh, I did get a D one scholarship. So I, th- I drew hard. I threw, uh, upper, upper eighties, um, and in, in high school, mm-hmm. but I was, I was almost six foot four and 160 pounds soaking wet. Wow. So I think the, I think the college scouts looked at me as, Hey, you know, let's, let's give this kid a, you know, a good pitching coach to work with. Let's put 20, 30, 40 pounds of muscle on him and uh, give him a little bit of time to season. And boy, by the time he's a junior in college, you know, we, he, maybe he's thrown in the low nineties and we've, you know, we've really got something here. Um, right, okay. And so I think any of the pro scouts that were sniffing around, they probably had the same thought too, of let's let a college team um, invest in him and season him. And then, you know, if, if things continue down a trajectory, maybe maybe not so but that that was kind of what was going through my mind at the time uh, okay so yeah i got the i got a scholarship to go play at uh, colorado state university uh, in fort collins and uh um i got hurt i you know i don't know i can't say it was like the first thing that happened up there but once i got up there boy my arm just was hurting and i don't know if i if i had just played too much over the summer or what it was but um long story short uh, uh, turned out that I had a torn labrum, uh, oh, among wow. a few okay. other things. And back in the mid eighties, uh, it was, uh, you know, that was kind of before MRIs. They really had, didn't, they couldn't do a whole lot without actually going in there. Right. And, yeah. uh, so the surgery to repair that was, 
was a pretty pretty in-depth they had and they reconstructed part of the socket that uh it's actually when i was throwing uh, my arm was actually coming partially out of socket so one of the bones was actually dented by another one of the bones there so oh, goodness yeah was there a genetic. moment was there a moment or was this one of those where like it just hurt and it didn't stop hurting or was there like, you know, when, when pitchers describe like when they, they can almost like pinpoint the moment that they felt the pop in their elbow, you know, or something like that. Was this, was this a singular moment or is this something where you just felt it grow to where you couldn't ignore it? Yeah. It just, it just gradually happened. And I think that was kind of the frustrating thing is, you know, I I couldn't figure out what, what was wrong because it wasn't like one event where, boy, I, you know, really uncorked one and boy, I felt something tear anything like that. Um, so that was kind of the frustrating thing of what exactly is wrong. And again, it was the days before the MRI, they couldn't really see, you know, they were just kind of, they'd move it around and touch and feel and poke and prod and, and they kind of had to use their best guess. And, um, so that was kind of a frustrating thing about it at the time. Um, so I, I did have the, the big major surgery, uh, and that was like the January of my freshman year. So I redshirted, and I came back and was actually throwing pretty well uh, through through the summer and got into fall ball. And that's when I I, I did throw one there, and I, I felt they, they described it as kind of the, the back of the shoulder socket actually tore. Mm. Um, and so they said, you know, you can have another – reconstructive surgery to go in and the full-blown deal to to fix that and at that point i kind of said you know maybe there i hate to admit it but maybe there are some other things in life besides baseball maybe i'll go yeah <laughs> look look into those and so i got you know more interested in the academic side of of college and um so that that was in the whole scheme of things, not a bad thing either. So, you know, and part of, part of the point of this interview is, is hopefully somebody's, somebody's listening and, and will hear something like that and think like, how did you approach the, the departure from the game? You know, how was, what, what was the, you know, obviously the injury was the catalyst for it, but you know, I'm sure there's a, a play, a, someone out there listening that is is in this similar boat. I mean, ball players are perpetually hurt until they're not, and then they're just, you know, healthy until they're hurt again. Right. So, you know, what is there some sort of advice you could impart onto somebody that's possibly, you know, is, you know, sort of like a single like phrase that'll stick with them that maybe they're in that same boat. Like, you know, I got to start making decisions. Like, what was something you wish you knew going back to that? Yeah, that's a good, really good question. And I've actually given that a lot of thought. And I, and I think the, the phrase that sticks with me is you have to constantly reinvent yourself. And I think that's what I had to do at that point because I had wanted to play baseball ever since I was, you know, four years old and had some success with it. And that really became my identity all through high school and into college i thought of myself kind of first and foremost as an athlete as a as a baseball player as a as a college athlete and all of that came to kind of a relatively sudden crashing end and i had to reinvent myself so what else is there out there and uh it took me longer than probably was optimal it took me probably a semester of college to kind of fully detached from the game and my 
full of friends there that were all wrapped up in playing ball and on, you know, on the, on the team to make some new friends that were doing other things of things that I might be interested in. And that was a slow and painful process of trying out different things here and there. And actually it turned out, uh, I got involved with student government and my senior year, I was the student body vice president at, uh, CSU. Hey, there you go. And uh, so, so fast forward a little bit, you, you're the student body vice president, you graduate with a communications degree, my assumption. Uh-huh. Uh, and yep. then, uh, so then you get into the consulting. So I myself, I'm in retail, my day job, I'm in retail management. And so uh-huh. I find myself constantly using baseball analogies for everything. You know what I mean? Like, you know, when you're working with a customer, uh, if you prospect them, you get their information to for a callback or an appointment. That's like taking a walk. You know, it's nothing glorious, but you're on base. You know, that type of thing. When right. you, So how do you translate your baseball experience to your current line of work? Yeah, I, I think a couple of things. One of them is that 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 reinvention idea that mm-hmm. I think in our in our work, in our careers, uh, we have to continually reinvent ourselves or or adapt or or change ourselves or make adjustments to what we're doing. Um, and, I, and I think we'll get into this a little bit later as we talk more you know, specifics about baseball and pitching and, and my, my approach to the game. But I think the thing that separates the really good players from those that are kind of average are the, those that can continually make adjustments to their game, that they're not satisfied with the the performance that they just get, they just gave. It's how can I improve that? Um, what are some different ways of, of improving it and make some adjustments? Right. And whether that's thinking about it on their own or listening to others or going out and seeking advice, and so I, I do that a lot in, in my work as a consultant and as a, as a coach is encouraging managers and, and leaders in, in organizations of, you know, what, what sort of adjustments are you going to make? What, what got you here isn't going to necessarily take you to the next level. So how, how do you continue to, to make adjustments? Sure. Yeah. Um, I think one other, one other phrase I'll, I'll throw out there that, that has, uh, stuck with me is, is, you know, as a pitcher, there's kind of that phrase of, Hey, I always want the ball. Give me the ball. Yeah. Uh, which means get, yeah, I want the responsibility on my shoulders out there on, on the mound of, I want to give my team a chance to win. And I think, uh, that's, a, that's a, that's a good metaphor for wanting responsibility in your work and your career life of, Hey, I, I've got an opportunity here to, to grow myself, to help others, to, further the organization's goals. Do I want that responsibility or do I not? And it's, it's kind of a mental shift of, yes, I do. I do. I want that ball. I want that responsibility. I want others to be able to rely on me as a, as a strong performer, as a strong contributor to whatever the organization's trying to do. Right. It's, and you know, accepting the fact that maybe sometimes it'll turn out like Madison Bumgarner and then sometimes it may turn (laughs) out like Matt Harvey. You just don't, you just don't know. Um, and so, you know, one of the, you know, your, your, um, so you do the consulting on as your, as your day job, so to speak. Right. And then you've Mm -hmm. got, uh, the coaching and you've, and you've got a pretty well documented, you know, you've written books, you've done interviews 
on coaching. And uh, what I found most interesting about it was that you kept a diary during your son's games when you were a, a coach on his team. And yeah. so I guess, and it, it ultimately for our listeners, it ultimately cul- culminated in the book uh, titled a perfect season. Um, what did you learn about from that experience that, you know, tying into the previous question, maybe, maybe worked for you in your work life, but obviously we're talking about, I'm imagining here, like maybe 10 year olds, 11 year olds, uh, and, um, how did that, what did, what did you learn from a coaching angle too? Yeah, uh, boy, a ton, uh, you know, and it's, it's something I grew up around the game and, you know, had a, had a quite a bit of success in, in playing. So I, I kind of thought I, I knew what I was doing when I got into coaching and it, uh, it reinforced to me that the, that the technical knowledge, uh, isn't nearly as important as being able to relate to to people and to motivate kids or if you're in the workplace motivate others that those are really two different skill sets mm-hmm. and i think initially as i started coaching i kind of relied on well hey i've i've played the game at a fairly high level uh i should be able to help these kids uh you know learn how to play the game and um i i, I didn't necessarily write about this in in the book i but my first few years of coaching i struggled with that a little bit of Hey, I've got to try to make this game relatable to them. I've got to try to make my instructions and my coaching and my my advice, my wisdom, a little bit more accessible to them. Right. Um, and uh, so my my journey, the the journal that I that I kept um, and ultimately turned into the to the book. There was well, a lot of the lessons that I learned along the way of uh, motivating kids and um, kind of. Uh, I guess kind of reaffirmed my relationship to the game just in a little bit different way of, uh, that, um, coaching in some ways is more difficult than, than actually playing the game. Um, yeah, <laughs> because I can see what needs to be done, but I can't go out and do it for you. I can't want it more than you do. I've got to somehow translate that into helping you figure out what to do and, and have a passion to go do it. Right. So like during your, um, so during your coaching experience, you know, did you, um, you were the assistant coach. Am I correct in that? Um, I, I was an assistant coach, uh, through, uh, youth ball up until I think my son was 12. And then I was the head coach until he uh, got into high school. And then I, I was actually fortunate enough. I, I coached five years of high school ball, um, and and actually got to coach him in high school as well. Okay, so when did he? Uh, how did he take to that? Did you? Was that something he welcomed, or was this a little bit of the classic, like, Dad, you know, <laughs> I know how to play short, man. <laughs> you know, we, I, I really wasn't sure how that was going to work, and I think it was about the time that he was ten or eleven. I mean, we 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 clashed a lot up until the, about that point, and and I don't have a specific instance or a specific uh event that that changed the dynamic but at some point we just the two of us kind of figured it out and he really liked the idea of me coaching him and i really enjoyed coaching him and that's not to say that there were times where we didn't have our our moments uh but i made it a point before every season to ask him you know do you want me to coach? I said, I, I enjoy coaching, but 
this is your time. I, I had my time 20 years ago. This is your time. If you don't want me to coach, just say the word, and I am happy to sit in the bleachers and watch. And every year he reaffirmed, no, I, I, I want you to coach. And even his, uh, his final year on, on varsity, I was asked to move up from JV and, and be the varsity assistant his, his senior year. And I asked him again, you know, do you, do you want me to do that? And he, he said, yeah, I, I, I would like that. And it was actually a really a neat experience. Uh, his high school team, as part of a fundraiser, they got uh, one game at uh, Coors Field. And he actually was the starting pitcher that day. The varsity coach chose Oof. him. So I got to warm him up in the bullpen at Coors Field. And then I was actually on the field with him, uh, you know, coaching. So that that's one of the highlights, I think, of my, my coaching career was uh, – getting to coach him at Coors Field. Man, first first game, you know, first game as a pitcher on a major league field, you know, the the utopia, yeah. the dream and it's Coors Field as a pitcher. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's uh that's that's something right there. Yeah. So, um so you you know, one of the things that um, you know, so you've spent a lot of time in youth baseball. Uh, I have a half brother who was just finished. He's in college now, but he played a uh, high school competitive travel ball all the way up, uh, th- up until college. And he did the whole thing, you know, D one scholarships offers the whole nine yards, decided not to pursue it. And one of the things that, um, he was a catcher. And one of the things that he talked about a lot and that I hear a lot in the news, and I wanted to get your thoughts on it. Right now, one of the buttons in the cult, hot button issues in the culture of little league baseball and youth baseball and travel baseball is is a couple things. Uh, first off, is the consistency, the quantity of play, but yeah. most specifically, the uh, quantity of pitcher usage. So, as a pitcher yourself, what are your thoughts on? how we're doing this, uh, how, and I say we as a society, but you know, we as, um, you know, little league parents, coaches, how, uh, do you think that, uh, the culture is going about it with the competitive nature and the quantity of play and you see the results at the professional level? I mean, all the injuries of these young pitchers, it's almost like, it seems like if you throw over 95 in the minors now, it's almost a given that you're going to have UCL surgery at some point. You right. Know, Tommy John's a calling. So, and the, I hear this a lot that it starts at the little league, the youth, the travel ball level. What are your thoughts on how all of the, the quantity of play, the competition of play, but also the, um, the, the quantity of pitcher usage in particular as a pitcher yourself? Yeah. I, First off, I think I think kids play too much, um, and and it, and it's hard hard for me to say that you know as as somebody who loves the game of baseball and I, I play a lot uh, you know in adult leagues during the during the summer, but uh, I think kids I think kids play too much. I remember uh, between my uh, sophomore and junior year, I played on uh, it was basically an American Legion A and a, an American Legion B, so I kind of played up and played at my age, and I played up. So I was on two teams. I think I played 60 games over the summer and it was way too much. Yeah, that's uh, I know that I, I got, I got burned out uh, towards the end. Um, and here's somebody, you know, at, at age 16 or 17, whatever I was, loved the game, did, couldn't think of doing anything else. And by the end of the summer, I was just totally burned out on it. So 
I think of a, you know, a 10 year old or an 11 year old or a 12 year old that's playing 30, 40, 50 games over, uh, you know, a spring and into a summer. That's too much. Um, kids, kids should have time to play. They should have time to do other things. And I understand the idea that, you know, the more reps, the more experience, uh, the better ball players are going to be. Uh, but I think there's also something to be said for, you know, kind of having the, the mental balance, the, the mental health and the freshness of, of approaching the game. Right. Um, as I think about pitchers, there, there absolutely does need to be some sort of external measure uh, placed on how much a pitcher uh, can throw. Uh, two reasons for that. So like the, the little league has pitch counts. Um, State of Colorado has actually put in pitch counts for uh, the high school game. Um, at different oh. levels, you're allowed a certain number of pitches, and then you have to take a certain number of days off. It it can be a pain when you're <laughs> yeah, running when towards you're... the end of a of a kid's you know in a crucial game, and he's got seven pitches left, and it's a two to two ball game. I get it, but here's you know the the flip side of that is is that that kids are 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 getting overused, and I can't necessarily blame just the adults on that because i was a kid that if you at at age 16 if you had said dan you're going to pitch every every game this summer i would have said great yeah as long as my arm doesn't fall off i want to do it i want the i want the ball every day i love pitching I managing love, workload is it. not a thing at that age right. that's exactly <laughs> right yeah that's exactly right i i had no no concept of what would hurt me and what wouldn't other than well that's causing a little bit of pain right now but i didn't have a a larger perspective on that. Well, um, it's sold as being tough. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I think the kids don't have a good sense of how much is enough. And there are, there are two kinds of coaches out there. There are some that uh, are very responsible and want to do the right thing for kids and uh, Hey, you know what? You've, you've thrown a lot. I'm going to throw somebody else. I know that they're, you know, it doesn't necessarily give us as good a chance to win, but, we're going to give this kid a chance and give your arm a chance to rest. Yeah. That's those coaches. Um, I think we're getting more of those. Um, I think as, as awareness is raised, uh, but boy, there are still a lot of guys out there that are kind of win at all costs. And you know what, I'm here to win this game and I want, I want the trophy. I want the prestige of being the coach that took this team and we, we won this or we won that. And, you know, unfortunately I think the kid's, can be collateral damage along the way, whether that's pitchers that get overused or right. it's kids that burn out and are done with the sport because they played 55 games as a, as a 12 year old and said, God, I don't want to go through the summer like that again. All my friends were riding bikes and they were down at the pool and they were doing these fun things. And I, I didn't get a chance to do that. So I don't think I want to play baseball next yeah. year. Yeah. The proverbial uh, and maybe literal bodies in the wake, so to speak. Of yeah. the coach's legacy. Um, yeah. So, um, you know, touching on that a little bit, you know, with uh, when it comes to the, the pitching and the, and the hyper-competitive nature of it, you know, you see, do you think, for example, like you say there's more, we'll say good apples than bad apples, right, to, to paraphrase Buck O'Neill. The, yeah. the thing that I wonder is, are, do you see, foresee a structural change in the eventual like major league talent as we become more aware of this as we get more good responsible coaches do you think that we could see a day where like throwing 102 isn't or you know throwing 99 
isn't a requirement anymore. You know, where we start to see pitchers, you know, coaches teach kids how to pitch without, you know, the the strain on their bodies and uh, the over usage. Like, do you do you see a structural change any time in the near future with that? I I hope so. And here's one thing that gives me a little bit of hope in that regard. Um, so it used to be that pitchers were said, you know, keep the ball low. And so there were all sorts of drills of pitchers and they learned to throw the ball, you know, right around the knees or even below. And there were some drills that taught them to throw even, you know, middle of the shin. And so that as the game, you know, once they got into the game, the adrenaline was flowing, the ball would naturally rise a little bit and they would be thrown at the low end of the strike zone. Mm-hmm. Hitters adjusted. It took them a while, but, but, Good hitting coaches said, okay, well, that's really all we're going to see is stuff down in the zone. It's the uh, so, launch angle revolution. Yeah, exactly. And so the coaches said, all right, I'm just going to teach my kids how to hit the hit the low pitch. And they've gotten really good at it. And so there's been a little bit of a revolution in pitching, say, you know what? We can actually throw the ball high now because batters aren't used to that. They don't see that very often or if when they do it's just kind of a mistake pitchers aren't doing it on purpose in the right right situation so learning the sequence of when and how to do that so that's where i think there's been a shift of you know hitch hitter versus pitcher so i'm i'm envisioning and, and maybe my experience as a 51 year old playing against a bunch of professional 24 year olds might might lend a little bit of uh insight into where we could go with this but um you know being able to hit your spots and being able to throw very different than than others um it can be a real competitive advantage um right. so the maddox you know, approach as i call it a- absolutely you know he didn't overpower anybody but no. there were times where he threw the his fastball by guys because they were looking for his slider or curveball and um uh, that's been my experience as a, as a pitcher as well, is if you're, if you're, if you're just a thrower that you're going to rear back and okay, 95 didn't get somebody out. Let's see if I got 97 in the tank today. Yeah. No, if I, if I threw 95 and didn't get somebody out, you know, maybe 89 is the way to go to get that guy out. Okay. Um, and so kind of staying in the coaching realm here, um, I got, I got a two part question for you. Um, to the naked eye, it seems like baseball in, in general is there's an argument being made and, and it's sort of a below the surface argument that baseball is becoming less accessible, especially in, say, urban areas, uh, areas populated by people of color in particular. It's more expensive. It's more competitive, kind of what we were talking about earlier, the quantity of the competition, the dedication and the investment that parents and families are making. Um is this something that has really just always been the case and we're just more aware of it now? Or is this a, or is this more of a, a recent trend? And how do you think we, if it is, and you view it as detrimental, how do you think we correct it? Yeah, I do. I do see it as a trend. And and I think maybe we are a little bit more aware of it now, but I also look at, um, in the Denver metro area, uh, you know, I, I grew up here and I'm, and I and I live here now. And I look at some of the schools that I traditionally competed against that were good programs, and they were more, 
they were uh, Denver Public Schools. They were they were you know inner city schools, and they had they had good programs. They had strong programs. Mm-hmm. You know, today they are they are not, and some of that is is a function of their enrollment has has decreased. And so you know, if you don't get enough as as many kids, you don't have as uh, presumably as many good players. Uh, so, th- so there's that component of it. I would validate I, that too. I'm actually down in Atlanta and the, it's the same thing. You're finding the more affluent areas, baseball programs in particular are really accelerating. Whereas programs mm-hmm. that, that are more diverse and maybe more, you know, urban or, you know, urban in terms of location are, are, are suffering. Yeah. And, and it's, it's also the equipment and the facilities and the money to run a program. I look at right. uh, the, the suburbs and, you know, the fundraiser, I mentioned the fundraiser that, you know, my son with the, with the Rockies and, you know, we, we sold tickets and then got the, it got the game. So we got the game at Coors Field, but we also made a huge amount of money for the, for the baseball program, which is great. Uh, but, um, the that equates to boy our field was in really good really good condition it was it was newer uh we every year we put thousands of dollars into upgrades to the field and new dirt and uh you know cultivating the mound and putting in new bullpens whereas i look at a lot of these inner city schools and i actually during the summer i actually play on a lot of those fields Uh, that's where the uh the adults, the old men yeah. get to go play is, is some of some of those fields. And those those schools and programs are just starving for dollars. So they'll rent their fields out. Um, and so they make a little bit of money from from the old men playing on them. But, boy, I look at the conditions of the dugouts and the, the infields and the, the fences. And it's 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 tough. And, you know, you look at a, a kid that would, you know, come out to that and. Yeah, I'm sure they're excited. They're they're excited to play the game and all that, but boy, they the field that they play on and the equipment that they have and just the access that other programs, you know, the more affluent programs have, um, there's a huge disparity, and it and it's and it's it's only growing, um, especially as you look at the number of games that are that are played and the access to summer programs and and the money that is spent and what it takes to play in a club team or a travel ball team over the summer. Yeah. A lot of kids and families say they just don't have the money to do that. It's, you know, it's can be in the multiple thousands of dollars to go do that. And and that's, that's tough for a lot of families. That's true. I I actually remember from my half brother who, who did play really competitive travel ball. I mean, they would be up. I mean, you're talking a week of school, and then you're up at five thirty, six o'clock in the morning on Saturday to go play in a tournament. You know, they were in Pennsylvania, and they'd be, you know, an hour, hour and a half away. And right. you know, it, at some point, it's like, hey, you know, and if you don't go, you know what I mean? It's just a huge detriment to the team and the the money that they were spending, not just on the fees, but the equipment. So. And, and and again, these are the these are the types of tournaments I feel like that you know the scouts or you know the the rumor right there was always a big deal right. like the scouts may be there they may not be there we don't know where they you know that type of thing yeah you, you know, know and the, and 
Go ahead. The, I'm sorry. The, yeah, sorry to interrupt, but the sad reality of that is that you look at the number of kids on those teams that is that is going to get us college scholarship. Uh, you know, is 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 small, um, and you know their their opportunity to play behind high school. There are so few that get to do that. Right. Um, and you look at the money that the parents have put in and all the time and energy and effort um, towards, hey, our, our son could get a college scholarship to go play ball in college. Wouldn't that be great? And I think the kids certainly buy into that. And that's not to say that the kids don't want it, too. Uh, but I, I look at some families that, you know, they've spent tens of thousands of dollars, you know, in the four or five years leading up and into high school. And, you know, that, that can be years, years worth of college at a, in a community college, you know, for that kid. Right. Now that's not to say that they didn't get some enjoyment out of playing and, you know, kind of the experience of being with teammates and, and all of that. But um, I think we've, we've, that pendulum has really swung to the point of, maybe we've missed what's important about this, uh, that it's kids playing a game and learning the game and learning about themselves and learning how to be a good teammate. And uh, those are some of the things that really translate into the workplace and make them a successful worker, a successful parent, a successful spouse. Uh, Those are the things that we should be really striving to create, not, not the, 50 game right turn, tournament schedule that gets them a look at x number of college and pro scouts right do you think there will be a tangible tipping point for this or do you think this is just gonna, like I, my concern is that we're going to play a generation of kids to death so to speak you know, do you think there's going to be a tangible tipping point or one point or is there just going to be a time where, uh, you know, doofus writers like myself are going to look around and say, where's all the young talent? <laughs> you know, I think we're actually maybe starting to see a shift in that um, in the at the collegiate level. Uh, a lot of schools, you know, they still have their D1 or D2 or JUCO programs, but there's a huge growing movement of what's uh, called club baseball. Yeah. And uh, it has really gotten big over the last say 10 years or so. Um, and so these are kids that there's no scholarship there. It's not a varsity sport. They're usually run through their recreation center as just another club. And so the time commitment that they put in uh, for practice is, significantly less than than a varsity sport um they still travel and they still play a fair number of games but the kids are doing it for the love of the game not because they're getting some scholarship or the prestige of playing in a d1 or a d2 program and uh the level of ball is really good and there are i know several kids that passed up opportunities to play in college went to the school that met their needs academically or socially and said, you know what, I'm going to play club ball. And they played and they've had a great time. I'd I'd like to further validate that too, because I I can tell you, I played a little bit in college myself. And it's one of those things where finding a pickup style game, and I think this will always be the big disparity in football and baseball. 
you know, football, there's a flag football league somewhere nearby you Mm -hmm. in most cases. And, you know, if you just want to play football with your friends, two or three of your friends, you go out, you throw the ball around, right? With baseball, I always feel like in those formative years, like after, you know, late high school, early college, there's, it's so much to go to play even like softball in some cases. Like I said, I'm in Metro Atlanta. I got to drive 30, 40 minutes to find the nearest league and I got to pay the fees and I got to, you know, the team's got to show up. And it's, so that's one thing I completely agree. I feel like the pickup nature of the game, you know, you watch all the Ken Burns documentaries, right? And there's just a bunch of, you know, little kids playing stickball in the street. And yep. it's just like, you know, that sort of pickup, spontaneous nature of the game, I feel like we'll always have that as long as we are where we are now with the hyper-polarized competitive nature of it. It'll always have that disparity between the attractiveness of casual football and casual baseball. Yeah, I think you're right. I think so, you're right. So, um, you know, shifting away just a little bit from the the, you know, coaching end of things, I'd like to know a little bit about – you know, a couple, a two-part question again about how you got hooked up with the team you're with now, and um, how are you? How are you? How are you doing it? Like, how are you approaching getting hitters out at your age, at the level you're playing? Yeah, it. Uh, I guess when I got into it, I wasn't sure that I could. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I got uh, hooked up with uh, the. Tucson Saguaros, uh, they're a team in the... Uh, I'm glad you said it prof- first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's the uh, Professional uh, Pecos League. So it's the independent league. So it's not uh, single A or double A, rookie ball, anything like that. It's independent. So there are several, I think there are five or six independent leagues in the in the U.S. Um, right. And the Pecos League is mostly in the, in the desert southwest. I got hooked up with the the Saguaros, uh, a former teammate of mine, uh, ended up getting a coaching job down there. And uh, their season runs from the end of May to the first part of August, and they play about 60 games. And the first weekend was just kind of a perfect storm. Um, it was the, I guess it was the weekend of the NCAA regionals. So there's a lot of the D1 players are still involved with that. Mm-hmm. And then it was the weekend before the professional draft. And so my, my friend Bill, the manager, was having a tough time getting kids to commit to come and play in the independent league because they were thinking, well, maybe I'll get drafted or they still had their college commitments. Oh, yeah. So he called me up on a Friday and said, Dan, I, I really need your help. Uh, would you want to come play pro ball? And I kind of, you know, pinched myself and said, Bill, you realize that who you called, I'm 51 years old. And (laughs) he said, no, this is, this is really is, no, it is professional ball. Um, you can look it up on the internet, which, which I actually did. Um, and, um, he said, you know, I, I just am having a tough time getting enough players. Will you come down and, and, and pitch? He said, "I, I know you'll throw strikes and, you've played enough ball and you're in good shape. You're, you're playing now. Would you want to do this? And so, um, I said, well, sure. Why, why not? Um, uh, this, this phone call is about 30 years later than I thought it would be, right. uh, you know, my, my opportunity to go play pro ball. But I thought, 
you know, all those times where I've, I've wondered, could I really get guys out? Um, and so I thought, well, here's your opportunity. And I realized my game has diminished quite a bit since I was uh, 19, 20 years old. But so that's how I, I got into it. And so I got to I ended paging, up getting, uh, paging Dennis Quaid. Yeah, really. Exactly. <laughs> the, the rookie. And it was funny because when I went down to, to Tucson to do that, I had all sorts of movies. I, you know, I was replaying uh, The Rookie, uh, you know, in my head, right. and, and all of that. And, uh, of course, Bull Durham and Major League. And, yeah. You know, I had all those thoughts going through my head. Um, but um, so I got to pitch one one inning, um, gave up one run. And I didn't didn't embarrass myself, and 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 maybe more importantly, didn't embarrass the team. And so, about ten days later, Bill called and said, "Hey, we're we're on the road. Uh, we're in Bakersfield. We've got six games in five days. You want to come throw the second game of a doubleheader in Bakersfield?" Mm-hmm. I'm like, "Oh God, I can't pass that up. An opportunity to start." Yeah. So, uh, you know, went out and it was 103 degrees. Uh, the, the game started at noon and, uh, I felt pretty good warming up and all the, you know, the, the 23, 24 year olds are watching me warm up and I'm getting smiles, but, and they were, they were all really very supportive, but I could tell in the back of their minds saying, who is this guy? And is he ever going to, you know, is he really going to be able to get anybody out? Yeah. And, um, so I, making a short story long, I guess this time I walked, I walked the first batter on four pitches and, and I, and the place was just totally silent and I could just tell they were (laughs) like, this is a train wreck. You know, what, what is going to happen with this guy? So making a a long story short, I guess I I ended up taking a shutout into the fifth inning uh, of that game. And it was just, I got a lot of pop-ups, um, got, fly balls, lazy fly balls. They were just out in front of everything. And, you know, my, my approach to getting hitters out is I, I can't throw the ball by at, at this level. And really almost at any level now, I can't throw the ball by too many guys anymore. So what, what's your uh, scout? What's the scouting report on Dan Clemens? Like you're getting guys out, but what, what's the scouting report on Dan? Clemens? Well, he's got a, he's got a fastball about, he throws uh, if the winds behind him. He probably throws 75, a uh, little, <laughs> little bit of movement on the fastball it'll tail in mm-hmm. uh to a righty uh he's got uh not a quite a cutter though not quite a cutter no no i i, I throw a two seamer so it it, mm-hmm. it moves and dances a little bit uh throw a throw a slider and uh change up um my the pitch that made me different than probably anybody in the pecos league is i i throw a big knuckle curveball uh-huh. and uh so it's a great big breaking thing and they don't see a lot of that in that league right and so uh it's something that you know if, if you know that it's coming and you know where it's going uh, you you can hit it a long ways uh but if you're not looking for it um or if i hit my spot then uh you're gonna have trouble with it and i uh i was on when i went that day in uh, bakersfield and so I actually struck one guy out with it. Uh, I was their number three hitter. And then uh, 
the second time he came up, I actually threw my fastball by him because he was wow. oh, because he was con- looking for the knuckle. Wow, he, he, he was convinced I was going to throw him that yeah. curveball again. As a guy uh, who took a knuckle curve off the helmet once in college ball, that you know, you can say it's a knuckle curve, but it's still. It still bites. It still bites. Oh yeah. <laughs> so yeah. you're getting guys out. You're, you know, how? So the you could say the ball, the the snowball is starting to roll down the hill a little bit. So so what happens next? So I, you know, take the shutout into the fifth inning. We ended up um, there were there were two errors. They they pulled me. The wheels fell off the car. We gave up six runs in the inning. We came back and won the game, so I, I was off the hook. I only gave up one earned run. Uh, so at that point, uh, Bill said, hey, you know, keep your phone handy. If we get into a pinch, you know, we're going to give you another shot. Well, turned out uh, at the end of July, they were on the road in Monterey, California, and uh, said, hey, you want to you wanna come out and throw? And I'm like, gosh, that'd be great. And it lined up with my wife's travel schedule and work schedule that she could make it work so we got to spend a weekend out in uh monterey that's great and uh so i got to pitch uh two innings uh in the night game on uh, saturday night and ended up uh two two scoreless hitless innings and it was kind of the same deal um the just pop-ups some ground outs to second guys just just out in front couldn't wait and this is this is kind of that callback to the making adjustments right is that is that those the i'll call them kids the but but the players on the other team they just could not make the adjustment to what i was doing and they knew they had to make an adjustment but they just they weren't committed to it it was it was more of kind of a frustration that this guy shouldn't be here he shouldn't be throwing this soft how you know they were kind of in the the denial phase as opposed to I'm going to roll up my sleeves and I'm going to pound this guy. And I think, I think I got, I was kind of in this sweet spot uh, my, with the speed of my uh, velocity of my, my, my pitches in that I think if I threw slower, the adjustment would have been bigger and it would have been easier for him to make. And if I had been able to been throwing a little bit harder, they probably would have hit me because the adjustment would have, wouldn't have been as big. Right. So it was, I was just kind of in this Goldilocks, you know, just, just right uh, phase where I was able to get guys out. But I think the other piece of that is, and this is something that I think a lot of young pitchers uh, can learn from is pitch to contact. If you just, right. it, you know, if you can get the batter where he's out in front and, popping the thing up or he's late or, you know, you throw his timing off. That's how you get guys out and you can be really efficient. I, the, the two innings that I threw in Monterey, I threw 16 pitches in two innings and, and didn't get up any hits. Yeah. Yeah, That's, that's incredible. Yeah. You just don't see that anymore. You know, with the, the three true outcomes sort of thing, you know, everybody's waiting on that grooved, two seamer down middle middle right everybody's looking right. for that hanging the cement mixer right everybody's looking for the cement mixer in the middle part of the plate and um you know and and that sort of tails into a little bit of you know what do you um what's your what are you trying to accomplish here like what if if nothing else what are you looking to impart on these these kids cuz they really are you know by comparison right um, what are you looking to impart 
on on these on your teammates? You know, I I, I got into it uh, initially of you know it's kind of my my dream and could I can I really can I really get anybody out? You know, and I, I have success at the adult level, but I'm playing against guys that are 45, 50 years old, and um, I have success there. But I kind of always wonder, well, you know, what could I really compete? How good is is the professional hitter, you know? And so I, I was very curious about how good they are and how I could stack up against them. Um, so that's kind of what I initially hoped to accomplish out of it. I guess the other thing was um, helping the kids understand that they they shouldn't be throwers, they should be pitchers. And there's a huge difference um, that I think, especially at the lower levels of the uh, uh, professional uh, professional ball, their answer to everything is just to rear back and throw harder. Mm-hmm. And that usually is the wrong answer kind of like when you know you've got a knot in your in your shoe shoelace it's well i'll just pull harder and i'll get and you know that that doesn't work you know you need to kind of think your way out of this and and figure out you know what what is the the right thing to pull at the right time to undo the knot and i think pitching is is very much the same thing and and hitters can probably say the same thing about pitchers and trying to figure out pitchers Um, but it's not just swing harder. Um, so I think that's one thing that a number of kids, uh, learn from that. In fact, I got an, uh, email from the the coach after I pitched in Bakersfield. I think it was a few games later. Um, there was a kid that, uh, he struck a guy out on a changeup, apparently made the hitter look really foolish. And one of the kids in the dugout said just out loud, he said, Oh yeah, Dan taught him that, <laughs> and and I took that as a huge compliment. Of wow, okay, if if that's true, if he really did learn that from me, it's like all right, he's learning to pitch. It's not just right. I'll throw this harder and buy him. I'll outsmart the guy. It's making and, adjustments, like you were talking about. Exactly, making making adjustments. Yeah. So, um, you know, I I think. Um, one of the things, of course, this is on, this has got to be on your mind occasionally, and it's a it's a silly question, but I I can't not ask it. Um, the Royals, the White Sox, the Orioles, the Rangers, somebody, the Rockies, somebody gives you a call. Do you answer? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Even if it's absolutely. you know you you gotta answer right. Like this is non negotiable. Oh, absolutely. It's, you know, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to go out and I'm going to do my thing and you may hit the ball 500 feet off of me and then great. But I'm, you know, I'm going to go out and I'm, and I'm going to do my thing. But I um, want that damn ball when it comes, when, when, when they throw it back on the field, I want that damn ball. <laughs> you know, you know, maybe to answer your question about what do I hope to accomplish with it? You know, if nothing else, one of my bucket list items is actually to throw batting practice to a professional team, you know, before the game. Yeah. And I would love to do that. And I think I'd actually be good at it. Cause I, 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 <laughs> I can groove the ball. Right. Um, you know, um, but I, I've also coached and uh, I, I think just the thrill of being able to do that and being that close to the major league hitters and just seeing the, the speed of their bat and the sound off the ball that was one thing that um, I, I threw batting a little bit of batting practice. Uh, one of the days that I, that I pitched uh, out in Monterey 
And I've thrown a ton of batting practice to youth and high school and even some, some college players. And, you know, some of them hit the ball really hard. But I'll tell you, the sound of the ball off the bat and the, the danger that I felt being in the cage, even though I was behind an L screen. Yeah. <laughs> those, the professional ball player, the, the ball just, it's, it's different. It is, it is absolutely different. And, and maybe that's one thing I'll take uh, if I get back into to coaching is being able to tell that to parents of, you know what, I've, I've thrown batting practice to professional ball players. The ball sounds different. The bat moves faster. And that's not to say your kid can't get there, but um, we don't have those kids in our program. That's not what we're trying to do here, right. um, you know, being able to have that experience. Okay. Well, Dan, I extremely very much appreciate your time and um this has been a blast and um you know is basically that's i really appreciate you uh giving me the time to talk well thank you i appreciate it any any uh anytime i'm i'm uh talking baseball is is a good time and uh enjoy your questions it made, made me think um uh, which is which is always good i appreciate that and any any time that I can do that, uh, any time that we can think after work when we're not supposed to, I'm kind of right. About, I'm I'm about that. So <laughs> that's exactly right. Thank you so much, Dan Clemens. Uh, anything on the horizon we should be looking for? Any other any other work uh, on the on the way, or should we just be looking for you out in the Pecos? I, I'm hoping maybe I get another shot in the Pecos League next year. We'll see. Uh, another year older, and we'll we'll see what happens. Fantastic. Well, thanks again for your time, Dan. And uh, hopefully, hopefully one day, one day we're going to see you out on the, out on, out on the big league mound one day. I'm pulling for you. That would be awesome. Thanks again. Thanks, Adam. Yep.